This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello, good morning and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I'm Jackie McGlone, a journalist, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Blake Morrison to you today. This event is called, um, it's got quite a, yeah, poetry of novel writing. Okay. <laughs> um, welcome, Blake. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for coming out on this dreek uh, day. Um, a poet, novelist, critic, memoirist, journalist, librettist, dramatist, and professor of creative, write creative writing and life writing at Goldsmiths University, London. Blake Morrison is perhaps best known for his acclaimed best-selling memoir, And When Did You Last See Your Father? which was made into a film starring Jim Broadbent and Juliet Stevenson. Blake was, of course, played by Colin Firth. <laughs> Who else? Uh, Blake has also written a study of the murder of James Bulger, as if, and recent novels include South of the River and The Lost Weekend, which was uh, adapted for television. He's also published seven, seven poetry collections, and, but he comes to us today with a new novel, The Executor, which is about the piecing together of a poetry collection, which is then printed in full at the end. So readers get two books for the price of one. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to use that line. Oh, so, sorry. Right, so, <laughs> so. At the heart of the novel is a debate about the ethics of publishing material which may cause pain to other people. In The Scotsman, Alan Massey described the executor as a novel for grown-up readers that both excites uh, curiosity and satisfies it, while The Guardian's critic found it adept, attentive and occasionally beautiful with its revivifying excitements of adultery, incest, euthanasia, sex and lust and love, dreams, mortality and death. So what other perfect start could there be to Come a morning in Edinburgh <laughs> than such subjects? <laughs> um, we are going to talk about the book and Blake will read from it and he will also read a two or three of the poems. Um, we want your questions too. Um, I'd like to ask you please to turn off all mobile phones and should you wish to tweet about the event, please do so only after the lights go up for questions. Um, and I one final thing, I'd, the housekeeping goes on forever. Um, please do not leave the event until it's finished because it causes a bit of a disruption and however pressing the next engagement. So ladies and gentlemen, Blake Morrison. Thank you. <laughs> Blake, I believe you um, said for a long time you would never write a book about a writer and writing, so? Yeah. Why? Uh, well, that's true. I had a sort of prejudice against uh, writers writing about their own lives, which tend to be quite narrow. Um, but then I thought, well, um, I could draw for this novel on some of my own experiences. Um, I worked for many years as a literary editor on book pages, and so one of the characters in here does that 
kind of work. Um, and I always like novels that have work in them, where you feel you're learning about somebody's profession or some of the stuff they do. And so I thought, at the risk of it being one of those, you know, up-itself novels about writing, um, there were issues here that perhaps have a larger resonance that, well, mm -hmm. you just listed all the themes of the book. That doesn't sound as if it's too literary, too narrowly literary. Well, you, you have the, uh, the quotation from uh, Dr. Johnson at the beginning about the writer's life, don't you? Yeah. Uh, shall, I, shall I read that? Uh, yeah, yeah. It please. is commonly supposed that the uniform, uniformity of a studious life affords no matter for narration. But the truth is that of the most studious life, a great past passes without study. An author partakes of the common condition of humanity. He or she is born and married like another man. He has hopes and fears, expectations and disappointments, griefs and joys, and friends and enemies like a courtier or a statesman. Nor can I conceive why his affairs should not excite curiosity as much as the whisper of a drawing room or the factions of a camp. So Dr. Johnson thought mm. it was okay to write about writing, <laughs> writers. And if he thought so, bye. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about, about the executor, about the, the setup, about Matt the journalist and Robert Pope the bow, the bow tie <coughs> poet. Yes. Um, well, Robert Pope is a good, a good few years older than uh, his younger friend Matt. Uh, and one day over lunch, he asked him, would you mind being my literary executor? Uh, Robert's only 59 at the time. Obviously, he's going to live to a ripe old age. Um, but I suppose if you've got a novel with the title The Executor, it's not too much of a giveaway to say that Matt finds himself with a job to do. Um, Very reluctantly as well. Yeah, he's a bit reluctant, and people say, you know, it's a nightmare dealing with somebody's what, what they leave behind, and and that's really the the major theme of the novel is what has been left behind by by Robert, who has been he's a well-regarded poet. Perhaps he's not up there with Seamus Heaney, say, uh, but well-regarded, but very impersonal poet. He's never been confessional. Um, what he leaves behind causes some problems for Matt. Mm. And also Matt is envious. I mean, he says that he's envied Robert all, of his, all the time he's known him, doesn't he? Yeah, I think what he, what he envies more than anything is just the ruthlessness that uh, this, this man, who doesn't have children, um, Matt does, um, has just you know, gone for it with his writing, um, absolutely ruthlessly dedi dedicated himself to to producing, and Matt, Matt's a bit easier going and a bit all over the place and scraping a living, and he envies that kind of mm. focus. Mm. So uh, you're going to read one of the poems for us, aren't you? But I want to ask, what was more fun as an ex-poet, which is how you <laughs> describe yourself on your website? Um, I, I know need to change not, that. I have you're to not an ex-poet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what was more fun, writing the poetry or the prose in this? Well, I began with the poems, um, and I... Um, I'd been playing around with these poems for a year or two, and they didn't really feel like mine, didn't feel like my voice, or I, I, I didn't feel comfortable with the idea of putting them out there. Um, and could so you, without a spoiler, could well, you... It, it, <laughs> it, 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 well, it's a, a classical poet. Who is the, the, well, I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> So all the reviews did, but you know. Well, okay, but well, some people describe it, you see, as a, as a detective story. Because people who have not read it might be mystified by the fact that you've been playing around with. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to be careful here about right. how I put it. Um, 
it is a novel where you know you keep discovering new things. I think it's fair to say. And uh, anyway, um, I then had the idea for a novel which explored some of the issues that we, with students, particularly, I've worked with with, with with people working on memoirs and so on, and they're very troubled about how much they can put out there, how much they can reveal. They worry about the effect of their words on on the living and indeed the way they present the dead. And um, I've had lots of conversations about that, and I guess that fed into this because that's that's the issue that's that's faced by Matt, the executor, mm. uh, dealing mm. with this this mm. stuff. Mm. Mm. So, read? which did you enjoy more? Yeah. Um, the, can I say the combination? I'm not opting out. I mean, I didn't know what to do with the poems, and then I gave them to Robert. Yeah, I said, "You have these poems. They they sound more like you, Robert, by the time you developed as a character mm. than me." Um, mm. So I enjoyed that, you know, gift. To Robert. <laughs> Would you like to read one of the poems for us? I'll read, um, and then I'll read a couple of... From the novel, too. Read, read a couple of the, the poems and then a passage from the novel. Um, yeah, just to give you a flavour of it. Um, here's one of the earliest poems that... Um, he, he, Matt, in his work, he, he's essentially... He goes to the house where Robert lived. He has to deal with Robert's widow, Jill. He spends a lot of time in what was Robert's study. And at different points, he discovers different things. And this is one of the earliest poems that he comes across. As follows. I'm in love, no getting round it. But our love's hush-hush. I can't go tell it to the mountain or whisper it like Midas in the reeds. Why these poems, then? because they're written just for you, not to be published till we've stopped loving, sorry, typo, living. Maybe not even then. The woman in the shower, the bed, the books, the hotel room. It's the story of us, but only you will know it's you. Um, and I was a bit, he's a bit intrigued by that poem, but he thinks, well, of course, Jill, the widow, is very private. It's probably a respectful of her privacy, that, that poem. Um, but then he comes across one or two others. I've never read this one before. It's, maybe it's a bit much early on a Sunday morning. No, it's okay. <coughs> um, this one's called Vodka. And then there was Jess, a lesbian, so they told me. Black leather, tattoos, an Olympiad of nose and earrings. We had flown to Murmansk, where it was 20 below, and an icebreaker had carved a narrow channel. Her job was to mind me, mine to read poems from elsewhere, like an arctic convoy bringing relief. After the reading, the reception, the dinner of grilled sturgeon, a crowd of us drank vodka in my room, then three, then Jess and me. We perched on the bed, watching ships follow the thread of moving water, their lights like the shiny beads on her jumper. I'm hot in this, she said, pulling it over her head, then turned down the hatch to chink glasses, our rims clacking clumsily like teeth as we drank to the moon, the future, the icebreaker ploughing a watery furrow. Um, yeah, and he didn't quite sure what to make of that one either. Um, <laughs> uh, isn't Matt. Um, and then an even more troubling one. Can I just read a, 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 another one? Um, which is very, very different. Um, 
but is troubling to to Jill, the widow particularly. This one is called Morph, and it's not one of the more erotic poems. Um, it seems to be to do with uh, Robert and his mother, called Morph. She might have had a year of being less, her breath a wisp, her eyes a chalky mist, her hands too weak to tug the sheet up to her chin, and me content to leave her swinging in the playground she'd gone back to since dementia kicked in. But for the thing I heard her utter as I sat beside her bed, push dad, hire dad, words she whispered so intently I obeyed, unscrewing the bottle and filling the spoon like the parent she took me for. Go on, I said, down the hatch, spoonful after spoonful, till her mouth gaped open with the thrill of soaring upwards, and she was happy at last, and so to have pushed her there was I. At various points in the novel, um, Matt, the executor, has to have conversations with Jill, the widow, who feels very protective of, of Robert, or Robbie as she calls him, and his posthumous reputation, as does Matt, of course, and, and that's the issue. Um, anyway, here is an exchange between them uh, after he's discovered quite a lot of material um, and she's already raised an objection to. So he's arriving at the house. She kissed me when I arrived, which I took to be a good sign. The luxury chocolate biscuit she brought out was similarly promising. We faced each other across the kitchen table, just as we'd done on my first visit. Then she'd been a general laying out her battle plan. Now came the peace negotiations. The poems sat between us like treaties waiting to be signed. I made the obvious points that Rob was an important poet, that everything he wrote was of interest to his admirers, that his will instructed Louis and me as executors to put together a posthumous collection, that the use of the first-person pronoun didn't necessarily mean the poems were autobiographical, that some were certainly made up, that others might be homages to poets Rob admired and which critics more widely read than I am in poetry would recognise, that the reference to Rob's mother, supposing it was his mother, being happy at last, after Rob, supposing it was Rob, had given her morphine, supposing it was morphine, might mean she was peacefully asleep and or free from pain, not dead. That poems thrive on ambiguity and metaphor, that she was taking Rob's too literally, that ordinary readers wouldn't infer from them what she had inferred, that they would enrich his oeuvre and enhance his reputation. The best of them are love poems written for you, I said. A few, maybe, she said. But that doesn't make me feel any better. What we did and said to each other in private isn't a matter for anyone else. Here, look, she said, pulling out a poem called Posterity, written for your eyes only, not to be published. Yes, but his, his, his will says the opposite. He wants his unpublished poems to come out as a book. There are some scenes, she said, I find too painful to read. Really? Which? She shook her head. Come on, between ourselves, she said, well, she said, okay, you know that poem about a man and a woman lying in bed and he asks her how many lovers she's had before him and he becomes angry and violent? Yeah, I know, I said, it didn't sound like Rob. 
it wasn't Rob, it was my ex-husband. Our <laughs> marriage only lasted a year, mainly for the reasons the poem describes. There's another poem where, about a man giving a woman a split lip. That would have been him, not Robbie. If you publish those poems, he'll recognize himself. He took the breakup very badly, and he's still around. So Rob didn't change details. No, they're all there, exactly as I told him, even the bit about me drinking Lapsang tea. <coughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Um, uh, one of the, uh, with the, the, the main theme, as we said, is the ethics of publishing this material, but um, it's also a book about male friendship. Yeah. Um, you, you've written about male friendship before. I suppose I have. Um, I mean, I think in this novel, the, one of the things that comes over is, and, and maybe it's something we all think about, is how, how you might feel you really know somebody very well, but yeah. then something you learn something about them that you didn't expect and you wonder whether you really did know them that well, how friendly you were, oh, yeah. how deep the friendship was. And so that's, that's the issue for Matt. Um, yeah, the, I suppose it's quite true that the, the, last, the, last, the last novel, The Last Weekend, was mm -hmm. about um, male rivalry, two old friends getting together over a weekend years later uh, after university um, and you know, playing out their old rivalries. Um, jealousy, that was, you know, that one was, the subtext of that one was Othello to do with, mm. with jealousy. Mm. Um, and then my memoir of my dad, I suppose there are passages in that which are about um, competitiveness. I don't think it, competitiveness is an exclusively male thing. I don't I've think learned so, this. No. I've, <laughs> I, I've, um, maybe women are competitive in different, in other ways than the ways men often are. But, um, but yeah, um, there's a passage in the book about my dad wh where I lay out all the ways in which I feel outdone by him, mm. never, never mm. going to be able to live up to him, unable to compete with him. Mm. And so that theme was, yeah, run through the work, I guess. Mm. You've also written about your mother, of course. I have written about my mother because um, if you write one book about your dad, fair is fair, you've got to write one <laughs> about your mum. And my mother, Irish, um, came to England and Scotland indeed as a, as a doctor. Um, they were both doctors. Yeah. They were both doctors. <coughs> Whereas my dad was, you know, a big character and a big figure and writing about him was relatively easy. I didn't know my mother as, at all well. She was very enigmatic as a person and, and she didn't she didn't really let us into her past in, mm. in the mm. south of Ireland. I, we only ever had one holiday there when I was a small child. So there are lots of people I know with Irish parents, you know, they would go back for the whole summer and know all their cousins. And I didn't have that kind of experience. But after my mother died, I finally got around to reading these letters that my father and her had exchanged way before I was even thought of during the war when he was away in the RAF and she was working in English and Scottish hospitals. And um, it, it kind of, my dad had kept these letters, I should say. My dad had said to me, one day you might want to read these. Um, so that was a gift from him to me, uh, which I felt awkward about reading these love letters, but they weren't just love letters, there was a lot of information about mm -hmm. it. And um, I began to understand things about my mother that I never understood, and uh, even before I began reading them, we, we had a, 
a trip to Ireland, back to the town in County Kerry where she'd grown up, um, where the last surviving relative, uh, the, wi uh, the, the widow of her brother Joe, was we met up with. And I said, you know, my mum, I've, I've always been a bit unclear about the number of siblings in her family. She never really, we didn't meet that many, didn't talk. She said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just go to the back room. Yeah, Joe, Joe kept a list, you know. Your grandfather made a list, um, a list, yeah. So she came through with these three sheets of paper, <laughs> 20 names. And there was my mother, number 19 of 20 children. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of infant mortality, so another way to put it would be she was the 12th of the 13 that survived. Mm. But, of course, growing up, I had no idea of that. My sister and me, family of two, why, why would she need to play that down, lose her accent, mm. change her name? My father bullied into changing her name from Agnes to Kim. Um, one of the earliest letters, when he hardly knows her, he's, he's, they're talking about her changing her name because he doesn't like Agnes. <laughs> and um, they try out different, different names, yeah, um, yeah, often yeah. them quite boyish names, uh, Billy, Bobby. <laughs> and then <laughs> finally, they, finally they come up with Kim, which is what all her friends knew her as. Yeah, yeah. So she, she erased a lot of her past, and, and it was fascinating to read these letters, and, and if, if you like, to be given my mother. And, and so that's mm. why I wrote the book. And of course, the big thing was the Catholicism and um, yeah. the fact that his family was so rabidly anti-Catholic, um, just a Middle England sort of prejudice. Um, and my mother needed to, if you say I'm one of 20, <laughs> it's a way of saying I'm Catholic. Mm. Um, the reason I asked about yeah. uh, your mother is because it's slightly given the impression I have that the executor is entirely about men. It is not, because no. there are two fabulous, um, strong-minded, forthright women in this book. You've talked about Jill, yeah. but also Matt's wife. That's and right, sometimes right. I think, why doesn't Matt's wife just give him a slap? <laughs> <laughs> She, well, well, she, she does, of course. She gives him lots of verbal slaps. She gives him verbal she? slaps, yeah. I mean, she's, she warns him off doing, undertaking this work. She said, Rob, you know, he always messed you around. He's, you, know, you, you think of him as your oldest friend. You're kidding yourself. You know, he he'd have happily betrayed you. He'd never do what you're doing for him, for you. Um, you know, and you've got your own books to write and your job to do and three kids to look after. This is, don't take it on. Um, but he ignores her. Mm. Yeah, she's a very strong character, and, and they have an interesting discussion about posthumous reputation, you see, because Matt understands why Rob, why it's such a big deal for him that his memory will, will, will stay alive. Um, mm. And you could say, well, this is a foregone conclusion. Here we are, Muriel Spark, quite a number of years after the death. This, this, the, this festival is a big celebration of Muriel Spark, and you could say sh nothing in Executor did on behalf of Muriel Spark was necessarily made much difference. I don't know whether that's true. But certainly with some writers, what is released after, what shouldn't be released, what's bad for their reputation, what enhances it, is a big thing. And, and it, it preoccupies Matt quite a lot. Mm. Mary, Matt's wife, says, I don't care how people remember me. If a few friends remember me after I'm dead, that's all that matters. If my kids have good memories of me, that's all that matters. You, you lot, you're too hung up on this posterity thing. What's posterity ever done for you? you know? <laughs> so they have some interesting uh, arguments about that. 
has, um, <coughs> excuse me, has um, writing the poems whetted your appetite to work on another collection of poetry? Well, I can't seem to get going on another <laughs> big project like this. Um, so I've just been, yeah, scribbling away the odd poem is about as much as I can manage since this has come out, really. Mm. Um, yeah, well, well you, you need to change the ex-poet on the website then, if you're still I'll, writing. I'll, cha I'll change it, <laughs> yeah. Um, you've written an, a lot for the theatre, um, mainly for um, the great company Northern Broadsides, which was started by Barry Rutter, yep. who's now retired. <coughs> and that means that you're very good at adopting different voices. Does that help with writing a novel? Uh, I, I think it's a different discipline. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever seen a Northern Broadsides production. They're a, they're a Yorkshire-based theatre company, Barry Rutter... Royal Shakespearean actor. He did train in Glasgow, though. He did what? He trained in Glasgow. Yeah. Uh, did he? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Well, he, um, the values of that company, which are good old-fashioned theatre, you know, don't use modern technology at all. It's all about performance, all about clarity of diction, even in a, if it's in a Yorkshire accent. Um, you know, the values of that company really affected me. And, and yes, you do. I certainly... In writing certain parts for Barry, I was aware of the, the actor, the character they were playing, and that influenced me. And maybe it makes your dialogue a little bit tighter in a novel, but I, I do think the, the different sort of demands there. Mm. Mm. Uh, everything I wrote for that theatre company, by the way, was an adaptation of a classic play. It wasn't, uh, yeah. I have never yeah. written yeah. an original play. Um, but um, sadly, Barry's gone, as you say, and um, after 25 years, so I don't quite know what, uh, what the future is there. Would you like to write an original play? Have you had a yeah. go at it? Uh, well, um, I did have a go and I, with one. I never showed it to anybody. I wasn't quite happy with it. In fact, it was a bit too literary. I think that was the problem. Um, the nearest thing to original one was I did um, We Are Three Sisters, mm -hmm. which was... Somebody said to me, have you ever thought about how Chekhov's play has three sisters and the Brontes, three sisters? Um, how about putting them together, which sounds is absolutely bonkers, really, doesn't it? Um, you think of the yeah. Chekhov's three women in Stuck Out, Dreamy of Moscow, 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 the Brontes in Haworth. But the more I worked on it, the more I, I thought um, it, it, it could be to use the, the structure of the Chekhov play and write about the Brontes during a particularly intense moment in, the, in their lives, um, just as they're getting published, just as Branwell Bronte is been sacked in disgrace, is in disgrace, and so on. Um, and of course, the line, we are three sisters, that is what Charlotte Bronte, when they went down to London to tell their publishers that they'd been using pseudonyms, Bell, and really, um, they were women, not men. Um, and she said, we are three sisters. So um, I guess that play was the nearest to something original. Mm, mm. Um, I'm hoping it gets revived. There's a, all these Bronte anniversaries at the moment. Yeah. It would be yeah. very nice if, if someone yeah, re yeah. revived that. If there's any theatre producer in the audience, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about your executor? I haven't got one. <coughs> um, but you must have an enormous archive, don't you? Um, I've got, yeah. I've the, the <coughs> When my daughter moved out of her bedroom and I took over it as a study, <laughs> it sits sort of slowly accumulated boxes of things. There's a very good library at Leeds, um, the uh, University of the Brotherton Library, and they've 
um, they'd happily take Yorkshire writers' uh, stuff. And I've thought about they've, that. They've got Simon Armitage, haven't they? They've got Simon yeah. Armitage and, and a lot of Northern writers, Tony Harrison. Um, so I'm toying with that idea. I just I keep, I keep notebooks and I, I go back to them. And sometimes I've got, front of the notebook is a diary and the back of the notebook is poems or thoughts or whatever. And, and I sort of want to keep those for now. Mm. Mm. Uh, but there's certainly stuff I could let go. But I haven't got an executor. I have a, a friend, a poet who's younger than me, who asked me to be his. Um, and he's not the poet in, in the novel, uh, and nor am I, um, <laughs> obviously. Somebody did an event with me, and at the end, and I know her quite well, but at the end she said, well, thank you very much, Rob. That was a most... <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was doing another event with um, somebody, you know, not, not as discreet as you, who kept hammering away at, you know this Rob character and things he does and you know surely I was drawing on autobiography and so on I said okay go on I, I, I felt battered by it. I give in I said you know that section in the novel where uh, Matt goes as, on a speed awareness course I went on a speed awareness <laughs> course <coughs> um, and I, I hope that would satisfy him but um, no, I've never been to Murmansk um, which uh, in that poem um, it w there's a play at the Traverse uh, <coughs> at the moment which has got um, a very interesting conceit. It's about the digital executor and um, what we leave behind in cyberspace. Yeah. Um, it, it, do, you do, do you use much the, the internet much or you know, I do, Twitter? I do. Or I'm not on Twitter. Um, the... Uh, because it's fascinating the discoveries that are made during the course of this fellow having been appointed by his former lover as his uh, yeah. his digital executor. Yeah, and I know it's all changing rapidly. But on on Twitter, incidentally, my son said uh, that recently there was you know it's 25 years since the Bulger mm. uh, case, and um, there were a couple of documentaries that came out, and uh, yeah, I I made the point. I came on as the one person probably amongst a lot of people making a point which is not at all anti-Bulger or lacking sympathy with what that family went through but just saying should you put 10 year olds on trial uh, in a courtroom, in, a, in an adult courtroom anyway there was a lot of stuff on Twitter apparently my son said don't go on Twitter dad just at the minute uh, so I'm not um, well you know people assume that because it, you know it's all uh, digital now and so on um, that executors, archives collections of letters and so on that that whole industry is, is, is gone you know mm, mm. and it hasn't of course you know uh, novelists are giving their hard drives to universities for their archives and um, do you really think all those emails you sent are, are in the ether and will never be recovered or that things can't be recovered so I mean all that's quite interesting but I don't think everything will be lost I don't think that, that you know, the idea of the collected emails is not impossible there have already been books that have been mm. composed of writers exchanging emails and so on haven't there mm. Mm. oh well um, the <laughs> um, I d could we get some questions from the audience please I'm sure you've all got some um, please put your hand up and we'll bring a microphone to you Gosh, you're shy. Oh, we have someone over here, please. It's right at the far side right there. A in one of the booths. Hello. 
Hello. Um, I first read uh, your book about your mother, and uh, it introduced me to life writing, um, which I found very exciting. And since then, there's been a real explosion of memoir um, uh, and some really, really excellent, great stuff. Um, where's it going to go next? Do you think there's too much of it? Um, it just seems like um, everywhere you turn, people are writing their memoirs, producing their memoirs, and uh, have we got... Uh, has it gone... I don't know. It, have we got too much of it, or is it going to go somewhere? Um, well, I think one of the places that writing has gone lately seems to be into this sort of borderland between memoir and fiction. So if you think of, say, Carl Obig, Knausgaard's great work, or um, Rachel Cusk, um, Olivia Lang, I mean, th it seems to be on the cusp between fiction and memoir, and no one's quite sure, you know, which is what to call it and which is which. So that's one interesting spin-off from memoir. Are there too many? Well, maybe. Um, are there too many novels? Yeah, too many books of poetry, probably. I, um, people will... I think it's a good thing that people um, want to write about and make sense of their lives. And often, in a world of celebrity memoirs, you know, sort of honestly rendered ordinary lives, I think there's a real power sometimes in those, because those ordinary lives are sometimes extraordinary. Um, I think... It's quite hard, actually, for unknown writers to get their memoirs published. Um, and I worried a few years ago that it was all to do with... that the ante was being upped, you know, that it had to be, had to be extreme uh, in order for it to be marketable. Um, but uh, I work with... For instance, I work with a couple of life writers who are really, I thought, terrific memoirs, and they couldn't find publishers. Uh, uh, and of course, we live in a world now of, of self-publishing or independent publishing, as people like to call it, where there are other options to get your work out there. Um, but no, I don't disapprove of there being so much life writing. I, could, I couldn't. It would be hypocritical, wouldn't it? I'm a professor of creative and life writing. I encourage life writing. Um, and I, but for myself, I draw a distinction between memoir and fiction. Uh, I, I wouldn't dream of I might adjust one or two things in a memoir. I would change names to protect people, for instance. I might play with chronology very slightly, but it would be essentially the truth. Fiction, I'm making things up. Uh, I might draw here and there on personal experience, but Robert, the poet, I don't know any poets like Robert. Um, I know poets have done odd things like Robert, but... He, as far as I'm concerned, he's invented, and so are the characters in my fiction. So I'm not really an auto-fiction person. I, I, I feel I'm doing different things in a memoir. A memoir, you've, it's about having a contract with the reader that this is true. You're telling the truth, and that's part of the charge of, of, your, of reading a memoir, is you feel this frisson of authenticity, whereas uh, novels, you, you suspend disbelief and you're sucked into the world, but you know it's made up crude distinction, but that's how I feel about it. Um, you teach creative writing, so yeah. can creative writing be taught? <laughs> can you teach the piano? Can you <laughs> teach people to sketch? Um, yeah, there are, there are techniques you mm -hmm. can learn. Um, I think of myself more as an editor, uh, a mentor maybe, than a teacher, but I think there's no doubt that um, 
very useful things can be learned if you go on a creative writing course. And incidentally, um, I, I, you know, there weren't, when I was starting out, there weren't many such courses. There was Markham Bradbury at the University of East Anglia, and that, in this country, that was about it. Um, now, every university and places other than universities are, are doing these, offering these courses. Uh, but if you're a, a starting out on a career, whatever age you are, you're wanting to devote yourself more seriously to writing, it makes very good sense, not least because literary agents are looking to, to these programs. I mean, some of our students at Goldsmiths where I do this, um, halfway through their MA, they work, some of the work goes online. Agents get in touch with them. Um, and we, we as the, the tutors, feel a bit annoyed that they're only halfway, <laughs> halfway through the course. We want, we're, we're helping them. We're, we want them to concentrate on... Um, and they're only just starting out. But you can see why it makes sense to go on these programs because that's where editors and agents are looking for the next generation of writers are often coming through these programs. Okay, anyone else, please? There's a lady here. Thank you. Um, I just want to know, how did it come about that you chronicled the James Bulger case? And did you come up with any conclusions or how did it change you in any way? The, it, it ha the, uh, the murder happened in February 93 and in May 93 the book of my memoir of my dad came out and it did quite well and I think that was one of the reasons somebody I knew was working on the New Yorker and um, they um, asked me if I would be willing to sit in on the trial no guarantee they'd publish a piece. It would depend if it became international news. And But in the event I did sit through the trial, um, th they did run a piece in the New Yorker in the following February, the first anniversary of the murder. Uh, and I felt, although it was 10,000 words, I'd only just begun to explore um, the material. And so I ended up writing a book, which was a very unconventional kind of bit of reportage, it was a very personal book, um, but it was about what, at what age, what's the age of responsibility, because that was a key point really here, is what's the age of criminal responsibility. In this country, uh, sorry, in this country, I believe in Scotland, it was, for a time, it was eight. Mm. They set the age of criminals at eight. In, 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 in England, it was ten. In most of Europe, most of the world, 15, 16, 18, it's far higher. Um, and indeed, unless it's a case of severity, a rape or a murder, there'd always be anonymity for the defendant, and it would be in a, as it were, a closed courtroom. This was because it was, these boys were ten and a half. It was a public trial. The world's press were there. Um, and I felt very troubled by the inability of those boys to follow the proceedings properly, instruct their lawyers, even have a rational um, case pleading not guilty when they'd both confessed to, to what they'd done. So um, why did they do what they did? That was, of course, why I was interested in going to the, the trial to find out. But what I, what, I, what I learned is, you know, trials aren't about telling you why. They're just about establishing guilt. Um, so the whole business of motivation was confined to one morning when two teachers and two psychiatrists gave evidence, but they were not allowed to give 
full evidence or say what they had learnt about these boys, that they were only allowed to address one question. Were they aged 10 mature enough to understand what they were doing, uh, mature enough to understand the consequences of their actions? Um, and for me, um, a key point came not when I was in the courtroom, but when I retraced the walk that the boys had done with. If you remember, two-year-old James Bulger, they walked, having abducted him from the shopping centre, they walked him for two miles. And I, th I thought they were taking him to some remote spot to commit this crime in secret, having planned it. They were actually walking back into their own neighbourhood where people recognised them near their own school. And I didn't... They, got, they, they came to this little alleyway by a railway line they go one way, as Robert, 200 yards away is Robert's home, um, where he was going to get into big trouble because he, um, he had an incentive, he'd been he had a long history of truanting, and he'd actually managed to be at school for four days, and he was going to get a prize if he managed to be at school on the Friday as well, and he'd bunked off. So he was in big trouble. And then the other way was the police station, where they told people they're taking this lost little boy, a lie, but perhaps part of them were going to, were willing to deposit him, but rather than do those things, they get in trouble there as well. They took him up on the railway line, which was the third option, where they were not going to get into trouble with their mums or anybody else. In some way, I thought that was how a ten-year-old might think. But there were, you know, if, if, as far as the why of it, I, I, in the end, I came up with about ten different contributory factors, including the breakup of the parents' marriages and the after-effect of that, alcoholism, truancy, the fact that both boys had been held down a year uh, at school and had formed a sort of friendship, volatile temper on John Venables, bullying in Robert's family, seven brothers each bullying the next one down. There were so many risk factors, as a social worker would have identified them, uh, that contributed to, to, that, to that murder. So, sorry, that's a long answer to your question, but there were a lot of different things that I think contributed to what happened that day. It must have been incredibly harrowing to sit through the trial, but how harrowing was it to write it afterwards? Because you were living with this story mm. for a long time. Um, yeah, but I always, I always find it helpful to... To the traumatic things in my life, uh, you know, not long before it had been sitting by my father's bedside or mm. toing and froing to it for three mm. and a half weeks, rather similar. And, um, you know, I find that writing it, you cope with the memory. It was quite traumatic in that courtroom. It was a very intimate courtroom, so you got the bereaved relatives yeah. there yeah. And, and, and you got the parents of the two boys and the boys themselves, yeah. Any more, please? Yes, the lady there. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to your description of the novel, and I'm certainly going to go and read it, but I'm intrigued also by the title, The Poetry of Novel Writing, and I wonder what you would say was the distinction between poetry and prose. Well, when does poetry become prose? Um... Oh, well, I'm tempted to say, you know, when it turns the page or <laughs> when, the, when the lines run on. Um, again, I feel it, it, in my own... Uh, I'm not very keen on poetic 
prose, if you know what I mean by, by that. I suppose I mean kind of purple prose, ones that, that really pushing the metaphors a bit in a fancy way. I'm not keen on that. So I think, for me, the poems, which are probably conversational in tone anyway, but employ metaphor, sit apart from the novel, a lot of which is in, in, involves dialogue and obviously narration. Um, I did, I, when I was writing the, the memoir of my father, I'd, I'd, I'd published two, two, two books of poems before that, and then I'd, I'd, I'd dried up, really. I'd, I, I had a young family, I had a busy job, wasn't writing poetry, and then in the year after my father died, what came out was probably five years of poetry that I'd not written, as well as all the grief. Um, so that, that prose probably has an element of, of poetry in it. Um, but I don't, find it any, I don't find it easy to answer your question about what, what, what the difference is. Um, I haven't yet read uh, Robin Robertson's novel, you perhaps have, which mm. has been long listed for the Booker, which is a, it's good to see a, a poem or a narrative poem being treated as a novel. Mm. Um, but, so I'm keen to read that, but um, I don't know. What, do you have a, a distinction? that you make. Sorry, you don't have a microphone. You don't have a <laughs> microphone. Sorry, we'll bring it back to you. Not really. I was interested in what, what you thought, but, I mean, we do talk about purple patches in prose, and we talk about uh, prose being, oh, it's poetry on the page. Mm. And so it's in, it just the, the, la the blurring of lines between the two intrigues me. Yeah. I mean... For me, you know, I started as a poet and I think it's probably best to start as a poet and move towards narrative than to start as a prose writer and try and write poetry later. There's a kind of economy of language precision that you learn uh, as a poet, which I hope aids you when you, when you turn to narrative. But w when you've got that urge to tell stories, um, sometimes, you know, poetry doesn't seem the right vehicle. Writing about my dad, my first instinct, because I'd only ever written poetry, was to do a long, baggy poem about him. And then I thought, he, he wasn't a man who went into a poem. So, he <laughs> um, didn't read it, um, uh, wouldn't have appreciated that. So, it had to be prose for him. And then, having made that step, then the next step was towards running out of members of my family to write about then. Um, it was, the next step was fiction. Do you want to say something else, please? Something that, that Blake just said that made me think if poetry is emotion recollected and tranquility, is it easier or is it more appropriate to write about things like bereavement in poetry and not in prose? I think Because of the economy that you talked about. Yeah, well, I think that many people feel that the more that poetry lends itself to personal utterance and e emotion more readily. But you see, I ended up, I think, writing far more candidly and honestly in, in the memoir about my father than I'd ever written in two collections of poetry. Um, so, you know, uh, possibly I'm a bit like, Ro you know, I was the kind of Robert poet in here, two, two books of poems, but they were, weren't revealing anything about me. But when I wrote about my father, in prose, suddenly, for me, that became a vehicle for something more direct and, and, and honest. So I don't know. I think it will vary varies from writer to writer. 
I, I asked you, oh, sorry. We'll bring, we'll bring the microphone. Um, thank you. You said about memoir that this is uh, true. That's what the sort of contract is between the writer and the reader. Um, in these days where truth, uh, we have a troubling relationship with truth, um, more generally perhaps, uh, do you envisage that we'll return to a time where we feel more secure about truth and how that's presented to us? And what role do you see the writer as having in that? Yeah, it's a very good question, and I think at the moment we feel more troubled about what's what's true, what we can believe, what's believable than than ever before, maybe. Uh, and I do think writers have a a part to play in that, uh, that we rely on a kind of honesty in them. But I think, of course, novelists can be as honest as they can. You know, novels can be emotionally honest. Uh, as emotionally honest as memoirs. The story may be made up, but feeding into it are really powerful truths um, that the, the writer has chosen to address in that way rather than in a, a self-exposing way. Um, I would like to think we could get back to um, a world where we were, we were more secure about this is fake, we can't trust that, this we can, but I don't know. I don't, I don't feel on secure ground myself at the moment, do you? Uh. <coughs> A gentleman here, please. Hello. Hi. Um, you were talking about your notebooks earlier on, and you've been talking about the, some of the different way in which your work comes out. I suppose I'm interested in how, how do you know, or what's your way of finding that notes you're writing can turn into something as opposed to just being an, a, a, a rough idea or just a thing you've written down? Yeah, I, it, it, it's just fumbling in the dark, really. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because some novelists, I, think, I suppose especially genre novelists and crime novelists, they know from the beginning that they have the whole thing mapped out. Maybe not all of them, but they, they know the ending before they start, and if I knew the ending, I would never bother to start. Um, it's you know a blind sort of journey, and you, that's this note you made here. Is there anything to it? It's a matter of going back to it, and then developing it, and running in up a dead end, and then trying again, tr trial and error thing. So I'm never I'm never sure. Um, I did feel with, for instance, writing about my father. I felt at a certain point I thought, oh, this I could turn this into a novel, this experience I've had over the last year, character a bit like me, character a bit like my dad, and then I thought, oh, it's pointless, you know, this is the, 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 it's only the truth of that story is, is the only thing that makes it worth telling. But then other things, I felt, oh yes, this is a short story, and not, no, I've written many of those, or this is a poem, or this maybe has the legs for something longer, but you're never really quite sure until you've spent some time with it. I just wanted to ask about this combination of poetry and then getting into the mind or a little bit into the mind of the poet. I think as a poet, you quite often leave gaps and le allow the reader to make decisions for themselves. And I wonder if you enjoyed the process of having the poems and then being able to unfold a little bit more in the, pro in the text about what was going on there in a way that a poet or your own poetry you're not usually able to do. 
Yeah, that, 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 there may be something in that. Though I think probably with novels, with novels too, if, if the reader feels being given it all on the plate, being fed too much, um, no room to move, um, that can be as constricting. But certainly a poem, which is likely to be a lot shorter than a novel, is, is going to leave you, invite you to do, to do more work, intrigue you, intrigue you more perhaps. One thing we've not really talked a lot about, of course, is uh, this whole business of what does get left behind. Because mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think the other thing <coughs> that, that started me off on this was the thought of poets whose work we might be reading today, but we, not, we weren't given the chance to. And I'm meaning not all the, perhaps, many poets whose work has not survived, but those, some of which survived and some of which hasn't. So famously, Byron... Um, wrote these memoirs and um, he gave them to uh, a poet friend uh, who made, uh, uh, was supposed to keep it, he made a copy of it for other people to read in private. But when Byron died, um, another friend who was jealous of that person having the manuscript mm. uh, and Byron's publisher, they all met in London and decided these memoirs were so scurrilous, although only one of them, had, the three, had read it, read the memoirs that they had to be destroyed. So rather than keeping them and putting them away for 50 years, they were worried about the effect on Byron's estranged wife reading them, Byron's sister and the mm -hmm. incest. Um, they destroyed them. They put them in the fire. Um, they would have been interesting to read. I'm sorry we don't have them to read. Philip Larkin wanted his diaries to be destroyed and be shredded, and they were. Um, I'm and sorry. the Plath Hughes estate as well, they yeah. the rewriting of... And famously, Kafka asked his friend Max Brode, he said, um, of course, I want, when I die, I want everything to be destroyed. Um, and Brode had kept everything that Kafka sent him. He said, I'm not going to destroy your stuff. But Kafka said, no, no, you're my executor. Mm. I'm giving you the job. So if Max Brode had destroyed it, we wouldn't have the trial, we wouldn't have the castle, we wouldn't have America. Did Kafka really want that stuff destroyed, or why mm. didn't he do it himself? Um, so there's always that ambivalence of, of writers who leave stuff behind, and they, they say, oh, I don't want a biography, or I don't want anybody looking at this. Well, why didn't they get rid of it then? You know, you do get Thomas Hardy, Henry James, they burnt lots of their papers when they were tidying up their life, which a lot of writers do towards the end of their life. They get worried about that scandalous stuff from, early, from their earlier lives, get rid of it. Um, so, yeah, that, some of that fed into this. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I asked you about uh, whether creative writing itself could be taught, but whether cre uh, there's another question is whether creative life writing can be taught. But maybe you'd like to end uh, with um, a poem on this, a playful poem on this topic, um, Blake, which is from your last collection, Shingle Street, isn't it? Yeah, <coughs> this one is called Life Writing, and it was... Partly, it was the, the pitfalls of life writing that I had in mind. Where have my glasses gone? Oh, in here. <laughs> <laughs> I can still almost read it. but um, And it's, uh, it's a little villanelle where you get repeat, uh, repeat words, uh, repeat lines. Life writing. You're trying to bring to life what's in your head. A story that's discomforting but true. Your interest in inventing stuff's long dead. 
You know that all worse sayings all been said, but strive to tell it straight and make it new. You want to bring to life what's in your head. The names of all the ones you took to bed, the triumphs and disasters you lived through. You'd like to set this down before you're dead. You comb the troubled past from A to Z. You drag forgotten memories into view. Your memoir brings to life what's in your head. But Tim, best mate at school, was really Ted. And Tanya's nut-brown eyes were turquoise blue. They phone you late at night and wish you dead. <laughs> the humour and affection go unread. Your candour earns you merciless reviews. Don't try to bring to life what's in your head. It's safer telling lies about the dead. Thank you very much. I just, finally, I couldn't resist buying this T-shirt the other day because um, sometimes people ask, what did I think of the, the film? Of when, of when did you like to see your father? And I do, I do like the film, but still. And let me see. I can't. It's true. Um, the book's always I think, better. I think, I think all writers should be given one of these T-shirts. <laughs> uh, I saw um, it being advertised. I couldn't resist it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'd, I'd obviously like to thank you very much indeed, Blake, for um, this start to the day with um, sex, love and death, as I promised. Um, I'd like to thank all of you and also for your terrific questions. And um, Blake will be signing copies of all of his books in the signing tent, which is on the right because the layout uh, has changed dramatically. You're very used to the 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 old layout. It's it's not it's no longer the same. And the um, it's it's advertised as the Gin Cafe. Um, so it's to your right. If you would give us a moment to get there ahead of you, we would really appreciate it. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.